0: There's a famous story about Charles Blondin. He was a great 19th century tightrope walker who walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls, actually several times in 1860. And each time he would go across, he would carry something different with him. And the story goes that one time he did it in a sack, if you can believe that, another time on stilts. Can you imagine? Across a tightrope over Niagara Falls on stilts. Uh, One time he did it on a bicycle, one time in the dark, and one time he did it blindfolded. In fact, he even took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across the falls at one point and cooked an omelet and ate it, all to the delight of these huge crowds that had gathered and were cheering him on. And so toward the end of his act, he grabbed a wheelbarrow And he shouted to the crowd, do you believe that I can carry a person across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And the crowds all shouted, yes, we believe you can. And so Blondin said, good. And who wants to get into the wheelbarrow? And the crowd was silent. You see, believing that someone can accomplish something in their life And yet trusting them to accomplish that very same thing in your life, those are two altogether very different things. The crowds believed in Blondin, they did, but not enough to trust him with their own lives. Not enough to climb into that wheelbarrow and let him push them across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And I'm afraid that is all too often an accurate description of professing Christians today when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in him, yet we don't always trust our lives to him. We don't always trust him enough to allow him to lead us from where we are to where we need to be. And yet it's not because he isn't trying to lead us, because he's always calling He's always inviting us to get into the wheelbarrow and trust him to get us to the other side. Okay, Whatever you're trying to navigate your way through in your life right now, God has provided the means for you to get there already. He has. We just don't always like the way he chooses to get us there. And so sometimes we refuse to get into the wheelbarrow. Right, and Instead, we try and get there a different way, a better way, as far as we're concerned, to follow our own path, our own plan instead of His, and then we wonder why things aren't working out the way they should. Well, listen, the only way your greatest needs are ever going to be met, the only way to overcome the biggest obstacles in your life, the only way to truly satisfy your deepest desires, is to obey God, to get into the wheelbarrow, when he tells you to, and let him lead you from where you are to where you need to be. And and generally speaking, by the way, there are two reasons why people obey other people or obey the rules or obey authority. It's either because of trust or fear, right? People obey either out of trust or out of fear. And there are elements of both trust and fear in our relationship with God, right? We're certainly instructed in Scripture to fear God, which we're going to talk about more as we go today. But listen, he's not trying to terrify you into obeying him. No, he wants you to trust him. Because ultimately, you won't obey him if you don't trust him. But here's the thing. The way that we learn to trust God is through obedience. Even when it means risking everything. Sometimes you just have to get into the wheelbarrow and do it God's way. By the way, you're not alone in that. That's true for all of us. In fact, the great apostle Paul struggled with trusting God when something terrible was plaguing him. He doesn't say what it was, but we know it was bad enough for him to repeatedly ask the Lord to take it away from him. And yet God's response to Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians twelve nine. In other words, get into the wheelbarrow, Paul, and let me lead you where you need to be. Paul wanted assurances first. He wanted healing first. He wanted his needs met first before he went where God was trying to lead him. And God said, no. No, my grace is enough for you. Even when you don't get what you want, even when your circumstances are terrible, even then I am all that you need. Enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. You just have to obey. You have to do it my way. Get in the wheelbarrow, Paul. And I'll get you where you need to be. That's a lesson Paul had to learn the hard way. And the truth is, I think we need to learn this too. Because look, it's okay to face something. It's okay to face something that challenges your trust in God. But it's not okay to disobey Him because of your lack of trust. Some of the greatest men and women of faith in all of human history have struggled with trusting God. But when they chose to obey Him, even when things weren't looking good and even when they didn't feel like it, They learn firsthand how to trust God through obedience. It's God's way. And it's a choice sooner or later that every single one of us has to make because there are going to be days when it isn't looking good. If you've been around any length of time on this earth, you know that by now. There are going to be days when you don't get what you want. There are going to be days when you don't feel like you're able to trust God to get you where you need to be. And listen, those days, are just, those days are just as much a part of God's design for your life as all of the other days. Okay, there are times in every one of our lives where God will not only allow, but will actually lead you to the end of yourself, to the place where all that is left is you and Jesus. Why? Because he wants you to learn to trust him, through obedience which may not always line up with your way of doing things but that's God's way and it's always the best way we're going to see that in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans so listen Uh, If you're feeling stuck today, stuck in your life because you're lacking something you need or facing something you feel you cannot overcome or going without something you desperately desire and you feel like you've tried everything you can to fix it, to make it better, to get there, ask yourself honestly, have I tried it God's way? Because until you answer that question, you're not going to get very far. And I'm telling you, he will not only allow you to get to that place of desperation in your own life where you have to answer that question, the truth is God will gladly lead you there if that's what it takes for you to settle once and for all that you can trust him with your very life. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see what Paul has to say about living life God's way. Romans chapter 13, we'll begin by reading the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. In its earliest years the New Testament church was predominantly Jewish and so although there were certainly Jews who took strong exception to acknowledging any heathen king who they considered a heathen king who objected to paying taxes uh, there were certainly many of them uh, who refused to support a heathen state in any way shape or form such as the Roman Empire but the position of the Jews within the Roman Empire was actually regulated by a succession of imperial edicts that actually afforded the Jewish people exceptional privileges within that culture. Jewish communities had the status of collegial or permitted associations which basically validated the various practices that preserved the Jews as a separate people from the Gentiles. And so things like the Sabbath law, food laws, the prohibition of graven images, all of those were protected under Roman imperial law for the Jews. Roman governors of Judea were forbidden to bring military standards with the emperor's image attached to them within the walls of the holy city, Jerusalem. And where by Jewish law the trespassing of a Gentile within the inner courts of the Jerusalem temple was a sacrilege deserving death of uh, the death penalty, Rome confirmed that Jewish law to the point of allowing the execution of the, the death sentence for such a trespass. Listen, even when the offender was a Roman citizen. Okay, The point being, the Jews, including Jewish Christians, stood to benefit significantly by maintaining some level of allegiance to the secular governmental powers that be because of their separate ethnic status within the Roman Empire. However, if you'll remember, the Roman church that Paul was writing this letter to was predominantly made up of Gentile believers who were not treated by the Roman government as a special separate group of people just because they were followers of Christ. In fact, uh, if anything, it was just the opposite because Christianity started out with a most serious handicap in the eyes of Roman law for the reason that its founder, Jesus, had been convicted and executed on a charge of sedition by the sentence of a Roman judge. And so when Paul starts out with, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, the word subject, hupotasso in the ancient Greek, means to obey or submit, Paul is making it very clear that although Christians are now living under the law of Christ, right the law of grace, the new covenant, that does not excuse them from their responsibility to obey or submit to secular government, even though that was often their natural inclination, to resist it. Right? And so uh, Paul says it is in fact to the Christians benefit that we obey the authorities who are in positions of power because there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, uh, there are exceptions to this described all throughout Scripture, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But Paul's not trying to cover every situation that's addressed throughout Scripture here. His concern at this point is that the Christians, particularly of the non-Jewish sort, understand that it is the duty of every citizen to be obedient to authority, even secular authority. Because rulers are not a terror, he says, to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, as a rule, if you're not doing anything wrong, you should have nothing to worry about as far as the secular authorities are concerned. And certainly without civil government in general there would be anarchy, a horrible alternative where evil runs rampant. So government is instituted by God as a blessing from God. Right. In other words this is God's way and therefore obedience and taxes and respect and honor and are all the responsibility of the Christian to offer faithfully. Not only to avoid God's wrath he says but for the sake of conscience. In other words we submit to our leaders not because they are important or wealthy, or powerful, but because they're servants of God. Which means to resist the leadership of our secular authorities is to resist the spiritual authority of God. Okay. Now again, it's worth noting here that all the New Testament writers were clear that they must obey God rather than men. As the Apostle Peter says in Acts 5.29, certainly Paul's entire manner of life shows that he accepted that sentiment wholeheartedly. Yet the same Peter later wrote, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. First Peter two, thirteen 13 and 14. So, OK, uh, which is it, Peter? One day you say we must obey God rather than men. And later you say to be subject to every human institution, just as Paul does here. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the answer, among other places, is in verse 13 that we just read, where Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, everything that we do, even in obeying earthly authorities, should be done for the Lord's sake. You understand? So we do that for His glory, not theirs. For His will, not theirs. For His pleasure, not theirs. Which means the point of demarcation from obeying earthly authorities, the point where where we resist our secular authorities is the moment those authorities direct us to do anything that is opposed to the will of God. Just some examples of God actually approving Christians disobeying government, yet keep in mind in every single one of these cases, uh, it's when obedience to government would mean disobeying God. Exodus one seventeen and 21, 1 Kings eighteen four through 16, Esther 4:16, Daniel 3: 12 through 18, and chapter 6 verse 10. Matthew 2:12, Acts 5:29. We just read Hebrews 11:23. I can share all these with you later, if you want. all examples of God endorsing the resistance of His people towards secular authority. In fact, there were even times when God raised up leaders to rebel against the government and deliver his people from evil rulers. Exodus 1:14, Judges 2:16, Hebrews 11:32 through 34 just to name a few. This is why Peter can also say we must obey God rather than men because those men were commanding him to disobey the will and command of God. Right? And that is unacceptable to Peter, and to the other apostles because they understood that they were accountable to God first, which also meant obedience to God's will first. Jesus said we're to render to Caesar only the things that are Caesar's, for we're to render to God what is God's. Mark 12, 17. In other words, we must obey God rather than men. And honestly, I think this is the bigger problem for the church today. Because as a rule, I think most of us, I mean, we chatter a lot about it, but as a rule, I think most of us obey our employers, the government, the police, our family doctor, right? Many other people, authorities in our lives, much more than we do God. Why? Because we fear the consequences of disobeying our employer. We fear losing our job. We fear the consequences of disobeying government. If we don't pay our taxes, we fear the government levying our wages or confiscating our goods, right? If we we fear the consequences of disobeying the police, we fear going to jail or paying fines. We, we fear the consequences of disobeying our doctor's orders. We fear getting sick, not recovering from an illness or an injury, our, our, okay? None of those things is really our problem for the most part. Our problem is we don't fear God. The Bible says that God is love, right? He, he's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our peace. He's our dwelling place. He is our light and life and salvation. For those of us who know him, we know that we're saved by a grace that we do not deserve and cannot earn. That's all true. And so it seems unnatural to associate that same God with fear. Yet Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus himself said, "Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him." He's talking about the Father who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Matthew 10:28. The fact is, the Bible talks about fearing God well over a hundred times. And of course, when we talk about the fear of God in church, we usually talk about things like reverence and respect, which isn't wrong. But the truth is, when the fear of God is talked about in Scripture, different words in the ancient languages are used in different places to describe that fear. It's not always the same thing they're talking about. Even the same words in different places carry different meanings. The the ancient biblical languages uh, are far more nuanced than the modern English. And so, yes, when the Bible teaches us to fear God, it is referring to a profound awe and reverence and respect. But listen, in a very real and very visceral way, at times it is also referring to people being utterly terrified, dreadfully afraid. And the difference between those two types of fear of God for us lies in the kind of relationship that we have with Him. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's addressing believers and followers of Christ. We're to worship him with reverence and awe. And by the way, both of those words, reverence and awe, in that verse in the original ancient Greek can also be translated as fear. So we as believers are to worship him with reverence and awe. Why? Because he's a consuming fire, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, considering how we approach fire. We certainly uh, fear what fire is capable of, right? If we don't maintain a proper relationship to it, experienced uh, negatively, fire can hurt, right? It can burn. It can destroy. It can take away life. For some, fire is terrible. Experienced positively, fire keeps us warm. It cooks our food. It fuels our transportation. It lights our birthday cakes. It, It makes s'mores possible. Fire makes camping fun. It sustains life. Fire's wonderful. You see, fire can be terrible. Fire can be wonderful depending on your relationship to it. So what does a healthy fear of fire look like? It looks like dread for what it can do when our relationship to it is negative and yet at the same time it looks like reverence and awe and wonder and appreciation for and dependence upon it when our relationship to it is positive. Right? If your relationship to God is adversarial, if you're not a follower of Christ, then, then when you encounter him outside of repentance, you would be right to be dreadfully afraid. However, if your relationship to God is based on his redeeming love and grace through your faith in him, then you may well still be dreadly, dreadfully afraid when you encounter him, depending upon the encounters we see in Scripture. But that dread will quickly turn to gratitude and wonder and awe because of his response to his children. When the apostle John, remember Jesus' favorite, when he encountered the Christ in his glorified state, John wrote that he fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, astounded and terrified by the overwhelming reality of being in the very presence of Jesus Christ in all his power and glory, John blacks out. He passes out on the ground before the Christ. Yet because John was a follower of Christ, because he loved Jesus, he says that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not for I'm the first and the last, Revelation 117. And so even though John experienced the same dread and terror before the Lord that so many people who don't know him have, Jesus says, it's okay, John. You don't have to fear me that way because you're one of mine. You belong to me. It's really great news for all of us who follow Jesus Christ and yet that in no way, shape or form excuses or exempts us from being so astounded by him so awestruck just to be in his presence so reverent before him that he becomes the focus of all of our attention he becomes the source of all of our joy he's at the center of every decision he's the purpose behind all that we do he's the motivation that gets us up in the morning and the drive that keeps us going throughout each day he is the sum total of everything that we long for in this life In short, we become utterly consumed by Him. That's what it means for the follower of Christ to fear God. We revere Him so much that everything else in our lives pales in His presence. See, our problem today is not that we don't just love God enough. Our problem, I think, is that we don't fear God enough. Because if we were truly seized by an awe-struck wonder every time we encountered Jesus Christ number 1 we wouldn't fear anything else and number 2 we would love him more than everything else honestly we should be asking ourselves do we really fear god today Are we as consumed by him as Peter was, who did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had? And so according to the early church fathers, upon his own crucifixion, Peter announced, it's time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it. Take it then, you whose duty it is. I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. And then while hanging on that cross upside down, Peter gave his final speech and then died. Do we really fear God? Are we as consumed by Christ like Ignatius of Antioch was the first century? Church father was taken to the Colosseum where Christians were being strapped to hot iron chairs and made to run between gauntlets of wild animals that would tear at the person until they were brought down by those animals and eaten. Knowing this was his fate, Ignatius wrote these final words. He said, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off as sometimes happens through fear. And if they're reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me. I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I'm beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me, making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. Do we really fear God? Do we revere him the way Queen Esther did, who knowing she would probably die for approaching the king without being summoned first, but decided to anyway in order to save God's people, she simply said, "If I perish, I perish." Do we really fear God? These were men and women who had such a reverent and awe-struck healthy fear of God that they feared nothing else. Do we fear God like that? Do we get up every single day thinking if today is my last, may every breath that remains within me bring glory to his name. Only let me get to Jesus. Do we really fear God? Are we awestruck in his presence or are we intimidated by this world? Do we really fear God? Are we willing to give him everything or are we holding on to everything that we can? Do we really fear God? Are we so captivated by him, that no temptation in this world could even begin to captivate us. Do we really fear God? Do we really fear him in a way that actually changes us? Because if we do, Paul says it will show up in how we respond to him and in others who are in authority over us, including the secular authorities in our lives. It will show up in every aspect of how we respond to other people. Even to our secular authorities through whom God often accomplishes, by the way, his will in our lives. Even though that may not always be our preferred way. It is God's way. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 10. O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul shifts his focus from the civil law, the Roman governing authority, to the Mosaic law given to the Jews so as not to leave anyone out of the discussion as was so often Paul's way. So he says, oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Which, by the way, is not a command prohibiting Um, all borrowing as some try to make the case that what Paul is saying is pay whatever is owed. So if you borrow money or goods, be sure to fulfill whatever repayment agreement has been made. In other words, make good on your word by paying back what you owe, okay? And then he takes it a step further by saying there's a type of debt that you can never stop paying back. and That is the call to love one another which also happens to fulfill all of your laws and then he cites several Old Testament commands and quotes Leviticus nineteen eighteen in support of his entire argument. So not only, Paul says, are we to be obedient to authority, but we're also to be obedient to love. For this is God's way, to love first and then to love one another as we love ourselves, which Jesus made clear in Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 40 when asked what was the greatest commandment of them all, right? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We talked about this last week, but we're going to talk about it again because Paul's talking about it again, which just actually underscores how important this command is because loving one another is God's way. In fact, 1 John 4.20, which we read last week, the apostle John explains, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Right, if we can't love each other, we can't love God. You cannot hate your brothers and sisters in Christ and claim to be saved. The two are incongruent. They cannot be reconciled. If you truly love God, then you must also love your brother the way that Jesus loves you. And by the way, he's specifically referring to other believers here which means listen how much we actually love God can be measured by how much we actually love other Christians without question we're commanded to show the love of Christ to the lost that's a part of sharing the gospel but how we love other believers is different when Jesus prayed he said I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you've given me for they are yours John 17:9 He also said greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends John 15:13 when he says friends if you read that in the original language that's an allusion a direct reference to other believers The apostle Paul said as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith Galatians 6:10 and of course Jesus said by all this people will know that you are my disciples By what? If you have love for one another, John 13, 35. He's he's referring to other Christians, which is interesting. If you think about it, isn't it? Jesus didn't say that unbelievers will know whether or not we are true Christians based on how well we love them. The unbelievers, no. Those outside of the church. And yet, Based on contemporary church culture, you'd think that was the key to being an effective witness for Christ. Look, you can slam the church all day long. In fact, that's become quite popular among Christians to do today. That's the thing, I get it. But as long as you show the love of Jesus to those outside the church, then you're good. That's not what Jesus said. He said, the way those outside of the church will know that you are who you say you are is by the way you love each other inside the church. Come on, he died for the church. So the authenticity of our testimony, as far as the world is concerned, rises and falls with the authenticity of our love for each other in here. I don't just mean in this building, I mean the church, other Christians... Our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what John was pointing out in his letter, and it's what Paul is pointing out here. Listen, don't go around telling people that you love God if you hate each other. Don't go around telling people how close you are to Jesus if you're you're backstabbing or badmouthing the church all day. No, because you don't love God if you don't love your brother or sister in Christ. You cannot love God if you hate your fellow Christian. Loving God necessarily means Loving each other. So what is that kind of love for one another within the church? What does that look like in everyday practice? Well, Paul just laid it out in the last chapter, Romans 12, 9-13, where he said, let love be genuine. In other words, don't put on a face when you come to church. or When you see each other outside of church meetings, be real. Be genuine. We, we can't love each other if we're constantly pretending to be okay when we're not. Don't be fake. We can't love each other if we don't know what's really going on in each other's lives. We cannot love each other if we don't let each other in. Is there a risk involved in that? You bet there is. And sometimes it doesn't go the way you want it to. But that's what we're called to do, to love. That's what it looks like. We have to be real with one another if our love is to be genuine. He continues to bore what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We have to reject anything and everything that tears one another down. So talking about each other in a negative light when the person isn't around, trying to make others feel small so we can feel better about ourselves, criticizing other Christians in a way that's not constructive, putting ourselves and what we want before others. We can't love each other if we don't reject what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Then he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We should be going out of our way to honor one another. To build each other up. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So, so one of the ways that we show love toward each other is by serving, right? You remember we covered all this last week. It's not just about hanging around. It's about engaging in service. Everyone doing their part. The part that God designed us for so that we can function as a body with everyone working together. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Paul says. Our character and commitment are shaped through prayer as we pray with one another and for one another. Are you part of a community group? If not, you you ought to be. It's where we gather in small groups throughout the week and we pray for each other. And finally, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Every one of us should be contributing with our time and our money and our effort, Everyone should do their part to contribute to the ministry happening in and through the local church. And one of the ways we do that, by the way, is showing hospitality to every single person who walks through our doors. Everyone. Listen, I know some days it's a lot easier to get your coffee and sit down and talk to no one. We get weary. We get worn out. And the last thing we feel like is connecting with anything other than a hot cup of caffeine. I get that, but contributing means giving even when we don't feel like it. So that every person who comes into this building or encounters us outside of this building should feel like they've come home. Okay, everything on this list of how to love one another should be hallmarks of the church. It should be hallmarks of Upcountry Church because doing these things is the difference between people out in our community actually believing that we are either true Christians True representations of Christ are just phony religious hypocrites. How well we love one another in here determines how effective our testimony is out there. Period. That may not always be our way, but it's always God's way. Mother Teresa pointed out that Jesus said love one another. He didn't say love the whole world. Why did she say that? Because you can't love the whole world. But you can love who God put in front of you. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul says, listen, church, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake from sleep. Sleep, of course, being a metaphor for a life of moral carelessness, laziness. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, we don't have any more time to mess around here. Just look around you. Look at what's going on in the world today. There's too much at stake to be casual about how we live for Christ. The time to get serious about living God's way is right now. And he sums it all up in the call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's noteworthy about Paul's command to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify, gratify its desires, and then all the list of all the sins he gives, what's noteworthy about that is the fact that he's writing this to the church, to Christians. The point being, even though believers have new life, we still have to constantly renounce the flesh and refuse to gratify its desires because that's our nature to satisfy ourselves. It's my nature to fight against it every day. If we have any hope of carrying on with God's plans for our lives effectively, we have to try to resist our old nature to gratify ourselves. So Paul says, be obedient to the authorities. Be obedient to love one another. And be obedient to your king, the ultimate source of all authority and love in your life. Because listen, if there's anything or anyone other than Jesus occupying his rightful place in your life, on the throne of your heart, then you're absolutely missing out on the life that you could be living with Jesus as your king. I'm just being honest with you because I love you. Okay, You'll never have your needs met. You won't. You'll You'll never overcome the obstacles in your life. You will never be fully satisfied with your life as long as something other than Jesus is ruling your life. And that's not the way he wants it for you. In fact, he wants nothing more than to meet your needs and overcome your obstacles and satisfy your desires. Why? Because he loves you and he wants his best for you. And so because of that, he will allow you to continue to make choices, even some really bad ones. The kind that Paul describes here, decisions that will eventually lead you to the end of yourself until you come to a place of utter desperation, a place where all that is left is you and Jesus. And he'll allow you to stay there until you ultimately accept or reject this truth that he is the only one who can meet your every need, overcome your every obstacle, and satisfy your every desire. And as hard as that may be for us to accept, sometimes that's God's way of waking us up, of teaching us to trust him. Because ultimately you won't obey him if you don't trust him. And yet the way you learn to trust God is through obedience. Even when it's hard, even when it means giving up some things near to your heart, listen, even when it means risking everything. Sometimes you just have to get into the wheelbarrow and do it God's way. Let's pray.